1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read this and then we'll go over a bit of review and then we'll jump in uh, to our text this morning. I'm going to start in verses 17 and then read to 24. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you O man of God, you have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. And then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you uh, also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is uh, in your mouth is truth. What an important story that is as we consider, as we always consider, the purpose of the signs in the book of Acts. And now turn to Acts chapter 9. If you recall last week, we, we thought about this as another example of amazing grace. Two weeks ago, we talked about church dynamic. We talked about the example of the conversion of Saul to Paul and how it's such a testimony of amazing grace, right? This one who hated Christians, was persecuting Christians, putting Christians to death, is radically changed. And then he goes to, uh, from the persecutor to the persecuted, and it's a radical transformation. We saw that as amazing grace, as we always do. When we hear wonderful testimonies of people with horrible past who walk through horrible things that are now Christians, and yet... We thought about the idea last week that Peter may even be a better example of amazing grace because Peter uh, becomes a Christian when he, he meets Jesus and we don't really get to see Paul fail as much as we do Peter. Peter, we see continually fail. And so last week we looked at Peter's call about how he was in the boat and he, he knew that, that there was something different about this way this man spoke and so he followed Jesus, which is part of the Christian life. We looked at his confession, uh, you are the Christ, the, the Son of God, uh, and then blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, my Father is in heaven. Uh, on this rock I'll build my church Jesus says and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so Peter's confession of Christ and then what we see the main theme of Peter's life is his testing and his failure how he denied Christ just for a little warmth he denied Christ three times the same guy who was willing to cut off ears for Jesus said I don't even know the guy Uh, and then finally we saw Peter's commission Peter what does Jesus tell him do you love me if so Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And remember that story because that's where we saw how Peter came from as this model of amazing grace. And now we're going to look at what's happening right now in our text. Our text being Acts chapter 9. We looked at where Peter came from, his calling, his confession, his trial, his failures, his commission again. And that brings us now to where our text is in Acts chapter 9. So let's go to Acts 9 and see where Peter is at this point. He's already experienced amazing grace, we know that, but... The Lord is still working in Peter, and that in itself is amazing grace. So, 
uh, in an overview of verses 32 through 42, what we really have is we have two stories here. We have two stories. The first one is about Aeneas, and that's going to be in verses 32 through 35, the miracle of Aeneas. Uh, that's going to be the first story. And so let's go ahead and read through that. Peter has now traveled through all the central parts of Israel. Remember, Jerusalem's kind of a little bit in the central part of Israel. He's gone up there, uh, down to Judea, up to Samaria. He's traveled around that central part. Uh, but in verse 32, look what it says. It says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. All right, you ready to look at my map with me? Okay, uh, so this is Jerusalem, okay, and this is, this is water, this is the coast, this is the ocean. Uh, what you have is about 10 miles, 10 to 15, could be 20 miles west, you have Lydda. It's about 10 miles from the coast, 10 miles from Jerusalem. It's in this little outer part, and that's where the place where Peter travels. Did you get all that? Are you visualizing that with me? Amen. All right, imagination, use it. Okay. He's actually going north of Jerusalem and, and very much over to the west, about 10 miles from the coast of the Mediterranean. The old place uh, that in the Old Testament is called Lod, now it's called Lydda. You know what's different between those two names? One's a Jewish name, one's a Greek name. In fact, it was a Hellenized name because it's an area where there were many Jews, yes, but it was mainly an area of Gentiles that they inhabited it. So, it had more of a Gentile name that was there, which is intriguing. Now, let's look at verse 33, where it says, There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. So, he comes across this guy. We assume that this Aeneas guy was a disciple, was a follower of Jesus, that he was a Christian, uh, because he somehow, word gets out to the saints of this guy's need for help. Says he had been bedridden. Some versions actually say since he was eight years old. You could translate it that way, but the best way is probably what we have here. Uh, he's been in this particular paralysis for eight years. And don't go over that part quickly, by the way. I think we get so used to seeing these stories of people that are paralyzed, and we, we anytime we see in the New Testament that somebody's paralyzed, we automatically assume the end of the story is going to be them healed, right? So we're not that worried. Don't skip over that. He is paralyzed. Paralysis. He couldn't move, which means he probably could not bathe. He was unkempt. He was, he was at this time regarded as a social misfit because what, what do you think people would say in that time if you remember anything about the culture, about somebody that was paralyzed? Yeah. How, what, what did he do? Which one sinned, he or his father, right, that he would do this? Remember their terrible theology about suffering is that suffering only became of the particular sin of the person. And so what did he do that would cause this, they would wonder, and they would outcast him socially. Even if we don't know what it is, they'd say, it must have been pretty bad, so we better avoid him. Not to mention the fact it was, he was uncomfortable, paralysis was was such a, it was, you became very, very depressed in that time. And so this man is in a very sad, sad state. Bedridden eight years. And remember, bedridden doesn't mean that he's just lying in a bed with a high thread count on the sheets, right, at this point. No, bedridden means he's on a mat, hopefully in the shade somewhere. Hopefully out, uh, if he's outside in the shade most of the time. Let's look at verse 34 now. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. What's interesting about that verse? He does tell him to make your bed. That reminds you of anything? 
What would be the significance of making his bed? By the way, somebody once said that this really shows the power of God because many of you have been telling your teenagers to make their bed every morning and don't have the power to do so, right? Uh, And yet this guy says that he immediately got up and did did it, right? So uh, let's think about this. What do you need in order to make your bed? Remember, he's not pulling sheets up. What does it mean to make your bed at this time? He's getting down. He has to roll his entire mat up, load it up, and take it with him, which requires what? Not only strength, but use of your hands, right? Use of your feet, use of your arms, use of your legs. He's, he's got an audition here to show exactly how he was healed. And that's a remarkable thing. But notice exactly what they said, though. Who's healing them? Jesus Christ is the one who, even Peter attests that this is not Peter doing this. This is Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the the Messiah, the one who is the Son of God. He is the one that heals you. And remember, this testimony of him being able to move now, this this was a testimony to others. This wasn't hysteria, it wasn't emotion. He was nimble in his emotions and he could do it. So he rose immediately. And that's a genuine miracle. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's great. You, I just would love to picture that, right? Not that I would love to be paralyzed for eight years, but I would love to picture the idea of that happening, someone speaking, Jesus Christ now heals you, and then all of a sudden, feeling coming back, right? You, we love these videos. I think one of the most precious videos I, I see recently is some of these videos where these kids who are born without hearing, right? Get, get the hearing device on their ears and they hear their mom's voice for the first time. That's just, it's so heartwarming and it's gut-wrenching to think about that precious child going that time not knowing their beautiful mother's voice to think about. I love picturing what must have happened, what this guy must have felt, the emotions that were running in his body when, when, when Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you and the feeling comes back. And then he immediately, uh, this is what I love too, is he immediately doesn't get up and he doesn't wobble. You ever stayed in the hospital bed for a while and your legs are like weak, right? You're not able to get up. This guy immediately gets up he's not only given healing he's given strength in healing and coordination in healing right I think if my foot's asleep I'm I'm jamming it up against the wall for an hour trying to get it to get some feeling again he's got complete coordination where he's able to make his bed roll it up and take it with him it's amazing this miracle uh, that happens but now look at verse 35 and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Sharon's a town that's just really close by. I'm not going to go back into the map. Uh, And so that's miracle number one, is the miracle of Aeneas. Miracle number two is a bit longer and a little bit more dramatic, even though it's no less of a miracle, and it's the miracle of uh, Tabitha. Tabitha's at Joppa, which sounds like a Star Wars planet. Did some research. It's not. Uh, And so don't worry about that, but we're going back into the map, okay? So now you have Jerusalem, You've got about 15, 20 miles. You've got Lydda, and you go 10 miles towards the coast, on the coast, and you've got Joppa, this city that's a coastal city, which meant likely it was a merchant city. It was a big trade city. Incidentally, you want to relate this to modern Israel, if you know anything about modern Israel. Lydda, that place in the middle right there, is where the modern Tel Aviv airport is. So if you've ever flown into Israel, you've actually flown into Uh, So this is Joppa, 10 miles away, and look what happens in verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named 
Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, just note the description of Christians in this passage. They're saints, they're, they turn to the Lord, they're disciples, they're followers. That term's used twice, they believe in the Lord. But in this case, it's a woman full of kindness and charitable deeds, which she did continually. That's a tremendous window on the early Christians. And I want you to listen to this because, I don't know if you know this, but Christians can kind of get a bad rap in the media today, right? For some people, Christianity is the worst thing that ever infested the earth. And maybe we ought to be very thankful for this rise in the interest of atheism that might liberate us from all these horrible, patriarchal, mean, bigoted notions that are rooted in Christianity. That is patently false. Did you know that hospitals were unknown among the nations until Christians came along? Unknown among the nations. The term hospitals comes from the term hospitality, right? In the original language. And in that day, if you had a baby that was deformed, you let that baby die. If you had a baby you didn't want, you put it on stones and maybe someone would take it. But in that culture, you wouldn't adopt a baby someone had left. It was like a modern abortion. Elderly people were also basically left to die. Sick people were, as we've seen already, seen as misfits in society. It was the Christian faith, not Buddhism, not Confucianism, and certainly not Islam, that came along and said, in the name of Christ, there are things called good Samaritans. And you've got to pick here of this already in the New Testament in this woman, Tabitha, otherwise known as Dorcas. She was one who was full of works and mercies. And then verse 37, the Bible says, and it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now, anybody want to know why that's important? Why would you put a body in the upper room? Smell, yeah. Likely, if you had an upper room, there's a, there's a little bit more of a breeze, right? If you had a lower room, you put that body in there where all the people were and continual ins and outs, the, it, would, it would probably stink a little bit. And so they're making sure that, that they have time for calling hours, for visitation to come. They washed her. They put her in the upper room. They prepared her body. And then in verses 38 and 39, we have this. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the names, or all, the, all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. They loved her. They cared for her. And in fact, she's one who cared for the widows. And remember what it says in the book of James chapter 5, right? Or chapter 1, I'm sorry. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is what? To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep unstained from the world. Which, by the way, is one reason why if you have widows in the church, you should particularly get to know them and minister to them. Look at verse 40 and 41. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, 
she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Apparently there were widows there that she ministered to. And in verse 42, the end of this story, it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So here you see this kind of ministry that she had and she no doubt continued to have it. But above all that, what we have here are apostolic miracles. We've covered this before, right? I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul speaks of the signs of the true apostles. And church family, Benny Hinn was not an apostle. The supposed miracles and the miracle workers you see on TV are not apostles. Apostles, by definitions, are those who brought the word of God. They are those who extended in the work of Christ. Jesus continued to do the work and through the apostles. And that verse says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, it's interesting that when Paul comes on center stage, he's going to do two signal miracles. Anybody want to guess what those signal miracles are? In Acts chapter 14, he's in Iconium, he's preaching, and he sees a man there that was lame from birth, paralyzed. You know what Paul says to him? Arise, get up and walk, and guess what he does? And then, in probably the greatest object lesson of never falling asleep in church Paul preaches a three-hour sermon really could you blame the guy but one of the the young boys there is on a windowsill and he happens to fall asleep and he falls out in Acts 20 and he dies Paul walks over boy comes to life now that's intriguing there are remarkable similarities to the healing of the paralytic Uh, that we see here and the healing that Paul said here. So why does this happen? Well, remember, what's, what's separate about these two men, Paul and Peter? Who are they primarily apostles to? Gentiles, right? Why is it these two? Well, I don't know, but these are the two who had particular significance. Why were these done? Well, let's look at this. A couple of reasons. One, both Peter and Paul followed the example of Christ. Because I don't know if you've recognized any of these stories as you hear them, but these are the things that Jesus continued to do and teach. So there are these wonderful similarities. You think about the healing of this paralytic with Luke chapter 5. You remember that story where Jesus takes the paralytic, where the guys really loved this guy, and they brought him down through the roof, and Jesus tells that guy, arise, take your, and walk. Remind you of anything? The same with raising a dead person where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He went into the upper room there. He bid the people to get out. He prayed over her, took her hand, and so forth. Which is saying what? Remember, this is why it's so key in Acts 1.1. The first account, Theophilus, is what Jesus began to do and teach. Which logically means that the second account, the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do and teach. The same works that Jesus did with the apostles. So they're following Jesus' example. But number two, both are done explicitly by the power of Jesus. Notice this. You have it in verse 34 where Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. I don't do it. Because the other theme that we've seen in the book of Acts is Jesus is 
alive and at work. That's right. And so he, he says, I don't heal you, but Jesus does. And then in verse 40, Peter kneels down and prays. Now, when Jesus told Jairus' daughter to rise, if you look at that story, he uses the word Talitha Kumai. Talitha Kumai, little girl, arise. This is Tabitha or Tabitha, one letter difference. Tabitha Kumai, arise. Showing the similarity at the work of Christ. But it's Jesus who does it. He's alive and he's at work. Both are signs of the salvation of Christ. Remember, these are all what we've referred to as a preview of coming attractions. Little snippets of what heaven's going to bring. New heavens and new earth. You can leap and praise God with no paralysis. Your foot will never fall asleep in heaven. New heavens and new earth, everlasting life, glory and resurrection has come. So these are signs of salvations of Christ. And both, notice, what do we say always accompanies the signs in the New Testament, the book of Acts? Absolutely. And notice what we see here. All these signs point towards that one purpose, believers are growing, furthering the kingdom of God. Verse 35, we have this, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean every last one of them, but representatively, at least many of them turned to the Lord. In verse 42, what do we have there? Well, we've got, it became known by the word all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Here, Peter is like Elijah, showing a, a Gentile area that he is a man of God. He's affirming that this message is truly from God. The woman, remember, said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God, and the word of God is truly in your mouth. So Peter's confirming that. Now, I remind you, these are not miracles that people do today. These are signs of the apostles that you would believe this word, the Bible, in that Christ, not the so-called miracle workers today. Okay, so let's ask the question, why is this here then? What's the application for this, right? How do I take these miracle stories in the book of Acts and use them for my own life? Well, you say, people will say, we have a real apostolic church at my church, a real Pentecostal church, because these things are really done at my church. Of course, the answer is these things aren't really done because I guarantee you, if in the Pentecostal churches around here, they raise the dead today, I know where the newspaper reporters would be, right? There every week, guaranteed. Even though I have a little trust in, in most news media reporters, they would at least have some ear for that. But they aren't there because that's not happening. It happens here. So what's the application? Because I'll tell you this, we're a Pentecostal church. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We believe in the fullness of Pentecost. You do? Amen. A Southern Baptist church? I say absolutely. In fact, we have greater things done than the works of healing the lame and raising from Tabitha from the dead. Greater things have happened in this church than those things. Really? Absolutely, because Jesus says himself that greater works than these you are going to do because I go to my Father and I will send the Spirit. What is that Spirit going to do? Well, he's going to take the very power of his own resurrection, 
See, what happened to Lazarus? Is he still alive? Physically? He's dead. What about Tabitha? She's dead. She dies again. Jesus, though, raises himself from the dead, and he's raised from the dead never to die again. And this is the great work, is to give you that life. The very same power by which he raised Jesus from the dead, he took you, products of amazing grace, and he gave you new life. He gave you new eyes to see the kingdom of God and that it's real. He gave you new ears to hear the voice of the shepherd preaching the word of God. He gave you hands and feet to say, when I'm serving the church, I'm serving Christ himself. It's a whole new world. And that work of regeneration or new birth is that greater work. So what's the application here? The application is that you show others amazing grace. Because remember, these people, they saw these things and they turned to the Lord. They saw these things as they were made known and many believed in the Lord. So the application for us is, folks, show people that you, in fact, are a new creature in Christ. I know what you were like before you became a new Christian. What happened to you? A miracle happened. Signs and wonders then they see you are for real. These things were done so that they could see the disciples were for real. People say, well, you think a whole lot different than you used to. That's right, it's called the new birth. Man, you're running your family different than you used to. That's right, new birth. You don't curse anymore, new birth. You don't look at these things, new birth. You're caught up in the things of the word of God. Why are you talking about Jesus all the time? The new birth. People say, people have to see signs and wonders so that they will believe. Well, how about this? How about we show them a supernatural church? Folks, you show them, you show the world that you love one another, and that is supernatural in our day of hate. You show that you can live out of forgiveness of sins, and that is supernatural in our day of tranquilizers and self-pity. You see, show them what the great things that the Lord has done for you. Anyway, that's, that's where Peter is. He's seeing these great works of amazing grace. But where's he going in all this? Remember, Peter has been predominantly in Jewish areas, but even when he goes up to Samaria and up to Galilee, these are predominantly Jewish areas. So in verse 31, all of a sudden, Peter is called to an area where there were Jews, but it was a predominantly Gentile commercial area. Joppa, Sharon, and also Lydda. What does that mean? Let's remember how the Jews felt about the Gentiles. If you were a Jew, you would have the same attitude toward the Gentiles that Jonah did. Remember that guy? You wouldn't want to go anywhere near them. You didn't want to minister to them. In fact, real, loyal Jews would spit anytime anyone mentioned the name Goye, Gentile. I didn't actually spit, don't worry. If you were a midwife... If you were a midwife among the Jews and you were a really devoted Jew and you came upon a Gentile woman in the pains of childbearing, you were not to help her. Why should we add more scum to the earth? Peter the fisherman is now brought to go to the Gentiles despised and spurned. You don't think the Christian church is really different? See, if there's racial prejudice in the church... If you spit when you think of a certain racial group, friends, you may be like the Jews of old, but you are not like the Christian church. 
the racial prejudice was being broken down as Peter is told, you go to Joppa, that predominantly Gentile area. And Peter went because he was told by the Lord, Peter, feed my sheep. That's what he says continually. Remember, Jesus was the one who already said before, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, I must bring them, they will hear my voice, there will be one flock and one shepherd, and Peter somehow knows he's getting perilously close to those people which he now realizes are Gentiles. This is why God is sending them there. God is breaking Peter's racial prejudices down. He loves him enough to do that. Remember, Jesus told him, feed my sheep. Now he gets the chance to do it. He's at the commercial centers. But that's not all. Look at verse 43. I want you to look at this with me. You may say, what's significant about that? Think about this. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Simon, a tanner. And no, he didn't own a tanning bed, okay? That's not what that is. Uh, I'd look that up too. Simon is a Jewish name, but he's a tanner. Why is it mentioned that he's a tanner? Well, one reason, that's where the address, Peter's going. Remember that? There's a delegation that's going to be set up with Cornelius coming soon. The other fact is that Simon's a trophy of grace. He himself, any name that's mentioned in the Bible as a Christian is a te- another testament to God's amazing grace. That's a, a wonderful thing. Even the occupations are, perform- or occupations are important. But let's think about this. Because one of the ways you would know where Simon the Tanner was is because if you were a Tanner... You were, according to Judaic tradition, to live 50 cubits or 75 feet outside the boundaries of the city or town. Because tanners worked with animals. They worked with animals that they skinned, and so they would get all the pelts. And as you can imagine, dealing with carcasses all day, it stinks, right? And so you don't want a tanner near you because they're working with dead flesh. In fact, not only that, but you were working with many unclean animals. So according to a strict Jew, a tanner's occupation was unclean. In fact, if your daughter was betrothed or engaged to a tanner, remember in those days, that's a legal bind. What had to happen if you were betrothed or engaged and you wanted to break that engagement off? You had to get a what? Divorce. They counted it as a divorce. But think about this. If you were betrothed or engaged to a tanner, and, and, and your father found out that that was a tanner, you could actually break that engagement legally. Peter, I want your racial prejudices to be broken down. You go stay with Simon the tanner. Yes, Lord, I will follow you wherever you would send me. See, this was the Lord's way of preparing Peter not to go to an area of the Gentiles, but to be the apostle to whom the Pentecost of the Gentiles would come in Acts 10. Because Peter is a product of amazing grace. See, Peter's the one who had all problems all of his life. Apparently, at least part of his life, even after these events, you remember the book of Galatians, he wasn't even quite sure about the acceptance of the Gentiles into church. Even after the vision, even after Cornelius, even after Acts 10, Paul still has to go to his face and rebuke him for racial prejudice in in Galatians. And the Lord knew that. And the Lord was breaking down the barriers in this amazing grace of God to Peter. Again, I think it's an even more example, a better example of amazing grace than than Paul. See, friends, we we say effectual calling salvation is a work of amazing grace to do what God did to Saul and, and radically changing his heart and changing his name from Saul to Paul. But listen to me. All of your life is amazing grace if you were in Christ. 
every event, your falls, when the Lord picks you up, when you have your best goals, your resolves, and you blow it. Remember last week in those moments, Jesus says, as he said to Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. The way the Lord stretches you and you go and do things you've never done before. For some of you, it, it might even still be difficult, even in this church, to get to know people of another racial background or even culture. For some of you, it may be difficult to invite people of another racial background into your home. Brothers and sisters, are you in Christ? God has put you here to begin to break down those racial barriers so that supernaturally you could show the world the Christ who is alive and at work, who does what the United Nations could not even begin to do. So we pray that all the Lord would con- that the Lord would convert all peoples, all nations, tribes, and tongues. Just think about this. Think about with all that's happening in the news and all things happening today. Think what happened if, even in this community, if the Lord would convert several Muslims and several Jews and they continually were in each other's lives and broke bread together and loved each other in the church of Christ. Think about what would happen. Then we'll have the news come. <laughs> they can get some pictures. But you see, folks, it's this. It's another model of amazing grace and it's glorious. Let me ask you this question. We'll close in a second. Are you a trophy of amazing grace? I'm not asking you if you're perfect because you're not. I'm not asking you if you've had a a great week because you probably didn't. I'm asking you if you were in Christ. I'm asking you if Jesus called you. I'm asking you, if you follow Jesus and even swallow hard and say, Lord, I may not, my flesh may not want to do this, but I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do, even if it's difficult. I'm asking you, if you love your brothers and sisters, when the Lord stretches you a bit, you say, Lord, I'm thankful, regardless, I'm a follower of you, that your your mantra would be to tell others, be patient with me, God is not finished with me yet. I think in a real sense, that is the Christian church. Amazing grace, a work in progress. But by grace, a trophy of amazing grace from Jesus who's alive and who's at work. Amen. Any thoughts or questions or comments on the the text? I always get ready to shut my Bible when I do that, and then somebody asks me a question about the text, and so uh, let me keep it open. Any questions or thoughts of progress or anything from the comments of tonight? I got to start leaving this a little bit more ambiguous, I guess, right? That's two weeks in a row. Something's going wrong. All right. Well, if you've got nothing, then let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we get to claim ourselves as trophies of amazing grace because of your amazing grace. Uh, Lord, that we would consider that we are a work of progress. That, Lord, we just think about how easy it would be for Peter to give up. For Peter to say, there's no way I could be used. I keep blowing it, God. I keep... Keep failing you. There's no way you could possibly use me. And then to see, Father, your work in his life. 
And Lord, it's not just amazing grace that saves, even though it is amazing grace that saves, it's amazing grace that grows and sanctifies the believer in Christ. It's amazing grace that we are a work of progress and that there is progress. Every ounce of it is amazing grace. So Lord, as we consider these things, May others see amazing grace in us. As we strive for Christ's likeness, as we grow in the faith, and as others see that, may it be a testimony to them. May it be as loud as a miraculous healing, the change in our lives, so that others would see and turn to you by faith. And Lord, I pray just as similarly, if there's anyone here that that struggles with any sort of racial prejudice, Lord, they know that they do if they do. Lord, you convict their hearts. You'd remind them, Father, that we are a testimony unto the world. And if we love one another despite cultural background, despite our differences, but are united together by faith in Christ, and, and Father, it's, it's a testimony of you and your amazing grace. Would you help us? Lord, even as you helped Peter, even as you continue to strengthen Peter and his love for the nations, that we would, Consider these things as well. We ask for your help in all of this, knowing that you are God and we are not, and yet we thank you that you are a good God who loves his children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.